Greetings and welcome back to another installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. Uh, this is your uh, almost weekly uh, rhetorical assault on the, the new cycle, the people that make it, and, uh, and occasionally ourselves. Uh, this is episode 24, uh, and you can consider yourself sufficiently advised. Uh, there may be colorful language uh, and loosely related diatribes. Uh, it, it is going to happen. Uh, it's probably not going to change, so deal with it. Uh, my name is Camille Foster. I'm a partner at Freethink Media. I am joined this week. Um, I am actually tethered virtually, uh, and I hope not tenuously, um, to my comrades, Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and Michael Moynihan of Vice News. Gentlemen, we are back like we stole something. Uh, how the hell are you, um, and where are you in the country? We are, we are all on Skype, hence the awful connections this week. Awful. I apologize. Terrible. Echoey. Um, uh, yeah, but you know, yeah. sometimes you need a little juice in the vocals, you know? It's true. Yeah. It's true. None of this, like, dry, red-hot chili pepper, super compressed. Enough already. <laughs> Damn it. Moynihan. Uh, I think Moynihan and I both are uh, receiving enemy instructions. I am doing it from Dearborn, Michigan, the capital of, of uh, Muslim America. Uh, here, um, just by accident, actually. I was just uh, I'm following Gary Johnson around. He was in Detroit uh, earlier. And I just drove down Michigan Boulevard looking for a cheap place to stay and and a nice, bright, uh, clean uh, Muslim city here. So uh, ironically, Matt, you ended up staying in the Aleppo of America. <laughs> Where What's is that? that? Uh, it's in Detroit. <laughs> Detroit, 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 where they used to make things. And, and Moynihan, are you in San Francisco trying to unravel I, the uh, information economy where they actually make things? I am. I was I was in L.A. and uh, Seattle, and now I'm in San Francisco. Uh, actually, I'm in San Francisco now, but I was in um, Oakland um, last night, and this morning I'm staying in Oakland. And I was staying there on the uh, 50th anniversary of the founding of the Black Panthers, uh, the o- Oakland-based um, psychopathic group that everyone thinks is fantastic. And uh, and yeah, so uh, I was in San Francisco. It's fantastic. It's a city that everywhere you walk smells like piss. It is uh, terrific in that way. <laughs> and uh, as you know, Camille, because I sent you a photo of it, I saw a child being arrested. Oh, I'm sure he deserved it and had it coming. Was he, well, the great, was he beaten in the street? Well, the great thing about it was I walked by him and I saw this like kid being arrested. And he was like, he clearly had been arrested before. He was like not bothered by this at all. Like if you had me at that age in handcuffs, I'd be weeping. I just uncontrollably weeping. But, but uh, I mean, probably now too. But San Francisco is uh, quite a place. Quite a place. Uh, I want to I uh, amend your say. It doesn't smell like piss everywhere because there's some places that it also smells like shit. Uh, <laughs> it really, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, isn't it? Like uh, this, 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 I love I love San Francisco. I'm from L.A. and, you know, L.A. and San Francisco have their their history, which is uh, mostly like L.A. just doesn't care what the history is. And people from San Francisco are uh, incredibly uh, provincial uh, about, uh, you know, how they're the most special, greatest city Ah. in history. And L.A. is superficial and terrible and whatever. Um, But I love going there, missing there. But you can't it, it is hard to wrap your mind around how everyone just decided somehow uh, that it was okay to tolerate humans just defecating it on the side. It is, it is the most unbelievable. I, I walked down the street 
And uh, literally to get lunch here at two o'clock and I'm on mission and 12th or something. So I'm in the kind of south of market area and I want to get lunch. And it was amazing. I thought I was in the fucking thriller video. I mean, there were people <laughs> lurching at me, scars on their faces. Like, and by the way, everyone's in wheelchairs. Like if they paid for these things, I would open up a wheelchair uh, store on uh, Mission and 12th. Cause I don't know, I've never seen so many people in wheelchairs in my life. But what are you uh, gonna, it, how are you gonna stop this wheelchair store? Are you gonna steal their wheelchairs? Is that what well, you're no, saying? I, I, I would say that there's a lot of people who need them, but I'm just, I'm just imagining they're not buying them themselves. Wow. Um, good chance, the, good chance of that. But, the one thing, and I, I would, uh, the great resource that we have here as uh, fifth columnists are our um, fantastic listeners who uh, know more than we do about certain subjects. Um, you know, not so much about others, but <laughs> on certain subjects. So what I want to know, and maybe Matt can uh, answer this question. This is a, probably a, a, is a libertarian question in some sense. Um, there are always ballot measures. There are always um, legal assaults on uh, gentrification in the city of uh, San Francisco because the prices, prices of uh, apartments here are very, very high. Rent is very, very high. I don't understand why the Tenderloin District in downtown, close to where I am now, has been resistant to gentrification because it is like being in Karachi and then you take a step and every apartment is $8,000 a month. I, I, I can't figure that out. So great uh, listeners of the Fifth Column who are from California understand the uh, regulations and uh, bylaws of San Francisco. Tell me why uh, everything's not beautiful um, here too. Because in, in New York, we got, like Brooklyn has just been end to end. Everything's nice now, more or yeah, less. Yeah, no, it's not though. Uh, well, not of that, East I, New York and not way out there by the airport. <laughs> I mean, Brooklyn's a big place. Long Look Island at- is, is a super long island. And if you drive on surface streets to JFK, you're gonna get through uh, Calcutta. Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean that in a nice way. Uh, like probably modern Calcutta is. It's uh, it, it it's pretty messed up too. Speaking of which, I want to just throw in here uh, so that we all get tangential right from the get go. I've been driving <laughs> around the great cornfields of Indiana and uh, and Illinois and uh, uh, Michigan and uh, whatnot here, uh, which is great fun. Listening to the radio, which I never do. And one of the great things that I heard uh, was the Reverend Al Sharpton, one of Camille's favorite people, uh, and also I think Moynihan's too. Um, I was listening to him on the radio. And he had this great formulation uh, saying about Fort Greene, uh, Michael's uh, stomping grounds, and uh, saying, well, if you look around Fort Greene, you know, it's it, with all the gentrification, somebody had to have a plan to make that happen, yeah. to, make, to push this all out. Someone had to have a plan. So what we need for our people is that we have our own plan, uh, which I think is just a, a, a great encapsulation not just of the thing that makes Camille's uh, uh, hair go on the back of his neck, which is the uh, concepts of our people, which are very zero sum uh, and silly, but also the the kind of uh, ridiculous notion that things happen, have to happen because of a plan, when in fact some of the best things happen. And that's the uh, long time argument of uh, the city of New York between Jane Jacobs and uh, what's his face? Uh, uh, I, I always get. The, the, Robert, uh, Moses. Robert Moses, I always yeah. call him Robert Car- Caro. And so yeah, who wrote the book about Moses? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like it, cities happen because people don't make plans. That's why they're awesome. Um, hey, so. by the way, I just want to know in the tally that will happen on Twitter, do I get credit for mentioning the power broker or do you? Because <laughs> I, I, I corrected you 
and told you that it was the Robert Caro book. So I want the people who tally these things to give that one to me. So thank you very much for that. Um, and, but and yes, for the, I, for the uninitiated though, this is the running tally of the, the number of book references that occur in the show. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They're rather high on the show. Uh, I also want to say that the, the, um, our people in this case, uh, I would presume are people who have television shows on MSNBC, um, have million dollars of in- millions of dollars of income that nobody knows where it comes from and doesn't pay taxes and wears a collar so it can get away with the most unbelievable um, absurdities. Because, uh, yeah, I don't know if, if, if he has a lot in common with the people in the Walt Whitman houses other than um, uh, uh, skin color. But uh, that's careful, okay. careful, careful how you talk about Matt's poker buddy. They are very <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I want to say before we actually talk about what we're supposed to talk about here also uh, that I met a lot of uh, folks out here because I, co- I covered uh, uh, Johnson uh, gave a talk at Purdue with like a thousand people. And I went out to drink it afterwards with some local libertarians running for office and things like that. A lot of fifth column fans out there. Mm. Um including a guy who uh, a very nice guy who asked me at a bar, like is Camille Foster as fun as he seems to hang out with in person uh, to which I said, if you, you know, if you call uh, being completely a blotto drunk after one, <laughs> one twelfth of a drink as you were on Saturday, uh, Camille, uh, on, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty fun, but shout out to all of those who are, uh, showed me great uh, hospitality uh, out there. He's fun. That, that's really not, not, not just I, not just fun amazing awesome <laughs> brilliant insightful uh, not at all humble um, so we we missed last week we um because yeah, because it was, was that well it was everybody's fault because it was that time mine. for well it was time it was it was labor day come it was on big, big and labor's fault we can lay this at the big labor's fault so, but we missed a big thing, Matt, and you're uh, around, uh, tra- traveling around uh, Gary Johnson. What was the big thing <laughs> that we missed? Probably a story that really didn't get much traction with uh, Gary Johnson. Can you remember anything? Oh, um, uh, Funny thing is, I, so I have a piece in tomorrow's LA Times that kind of talks about this. Camille and I saw him Saturday in uh, Manhattan. He spoke to about five, 600 people. And uh, what was... Uh, uh, Kind of, uh, kind of almost jarring was that the, the first words out of his mouth was like, look, and people were like psyched up to see him there. You know, they're pumped. Uh, look, I'm you know, I, I just want to start off by saying I'm really, really sorry for the way I handled that Aleppo thing. It was my fault. No excuses. Like and, and the crowd kind of didn't want to hear it. They like wanted to get on to, you know, like, get in the debates or, or something else like that. But he, uh, uh, you know, love or hate Gary Johnson. And I kind of like him. Um, uh, he's just kind of disarmingly honest and including in the, in the, in the brain fart moment itself, right? He's on morning Joe, Mike Barnacle, that great American journalist, uh, uh, asks him with this great look on his face, like, what do you do about this situation in Aleppo? The way he said Aleppo kind of, I wanted to throttle him for some reason. And he said it the second time he said it was was like he was talking to a two-year-old. He was yeah. Like, Aleppo. Yeah, his tongue was kind of like uh, lingering over there. Uh, someone else who pointed this out uh, that day was uh, Dana Lash, Loesch, Loesch from The Blaze, because I went on uh, that program that night, and that's all she was <laughs> interested in. She just kept saying Aleppo over and over again. So you were, there's another person out there. Uh, yeah, there was some, uh, Barnacle afterwards wrote a piece, I think, for the Daily Beast, saying that uh, you shouldn't beat up Johnson for this after all, although it really seemed like he was trying to do 
what Hugh Hewitt had done to Donald Trump a year ago, which people are almost totally forgotten about. But he did this with like, uh, so, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, you know who Soleimani is, right? And and Trump's like, uh, yeah, rem- yeah, just remind me a little bit here. And the whole interview with Hewitt was like just trying to uh, bust his chops about, you know, you know the Cuds verses and this kind of things. And Trump missed. Uh, mangled the cuds with the Kurds and other things like that, and it became a big scandal. Um, Trump dealt with this not in the Gary Johnson way of self-deprecation. He did it by saying that Hugh Hewitt was a third-rate broadcaster yeah, who gets yeah. terrible ratings and saying he shouldn't moderate any debates because he's really a terrible person. Um, and uh, it needs to say uh, Hillary Clinton when she deals with um, uh, moments where she's called out for her behavior uh, just kind of lies her face off about it and then says, uh, but I've, I've taken full responsibility for it. Um, I, I've been following the polls, which I've been doing anyways, in, uh, in the run up to uh, what could be a decision any minute now about who gets to uh, participate in the debates by the Commission on Presidential Debates. Uh, they said they're going to do this in mid-September. And we are here on, what, the 14th talking? So it's going to happen any moment, moment now. Um, so uh, looking at the polls closely, uh, awaiting evidence uh, uh, that this thing would have any um, uh, impact. And my uh, what, what I imagined going in was that they wouldn't just simply because what we have learned about Donald Trump, uh, which is he could say any damn thing and his poll uh, polls don't really go down. And we're not in a year where it seems like people are super sensitive to uh, foreign policy gotcha questions from the beloved media. It just doesn't, that doesn't feel like the political year that we're looking in. And then also, uh, Gary Johnson's numbers, uh, and Jill Stein's numbers to a lesser degree have been remarkably stable uh, throughout. Like they don't really uh, move up and down. They've been uh, pretty much a 9% in his case. Uh, and in fact, we've just now today and yesterday got the first batch of polls to come in that have been taken, uh, completely in a post Aleppo universe. Uh, one of them that came out this afternoon by Quinnipiac, he was at 13 percent, which ties his all time high. And it's up from 10 percent just three weeks ago in the same poll. Uh, two of the other polls tied all time highs. And then one of them was uh, was uh, pretty far below it on uh, the Economist YouGov poll. But uh, if, if there is an Aleppo effect, um, it has been stubbornly resistance to polling evidence. And I think for understandable reasons, I think it just to make sure that I'm not misconstrued here. Um, I think it was a stupid moment. You should know, you should have an answer to what Aleppo is, even if you think it's an acronym for a moment, which is the kind of excuse that Bill Weld is giving him. Um, I don't think that, uh, Johnson is, uh, has the usual isolationists, kind of um, complete ignorance of foreign policy. I think he knows more about it than a garden variety non-interventionist uh, knows about foreign policy. But he's also a New Mexico governor, and I don't think uh, foreign policy is his uh, strongest or strong, particularly strong suit in uh, general uh, with his knowledge. Matt Welch, I just want to call out your uh, ridiculous and flagrant use of the word um, usual with respect to uh, non-interventionists and their, their ignorance about various things. Uh, I, I think that's unfair. And okay. I, I okay, name me name me three really excellently knowledgeable. I don't, I don't have to do that. Non-intervention. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't have to do that. I just want to stop. I just want to. I just want to call right. out your general your generalization. Right. That's all I'm gonna do. I mean, that's it. I'm gonna leave it there. I'm gonna leave it there. Okay. Um, but uh, just just to chime in on this quickly, uh, I don't I don't know that it was mentioned yet, um, but I did find it funny that the New York Times story about this uh, had two corrections, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, uh, that was related great. to that related was, to Aleppo. That was which, fantastic. Yeah. Which for me, like, sort of underscore the central issue here. Did he make a stupid mistake, like, on television? Undoubtedly. 
Um, was there better media training that could have happened to prevent a stupid situation like this from taking place? Where just for a moment, like the name, oh, it's familiar, I don't know what that is exactly, uh, and you're running through your head, it's fine. Um, to the extent that the, 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 the talented, skilled, well-educated um, people at the New York Times, including the editor and the author of a piece, can miss things, important details, geographic details, um, you know, people are human, it happens. It's also worth noting that Gary Johnson's uh, IFB, that weird gizmo that you wear in your ear when you're on television, was like halfway out of his ear during most of that segment. Um, and I have had that happen to me on air. And it are is one of the IFB? worst yeah. things. Camille, it is one of the on, worst Camille. things. Did he yeah. have Corolla earrings? <laughs> he asked, he repeated the, the word. He asked him to read the and he's no, like, no, I'm just saying it's I distracting. Think, but I'm, saying I'm not saying that, that he didn't that he didn't not know. I'm saying it's yeah, distracting. Me, Those are two yeah, different two different things. You I'm can conflate give, them if you like. I would prefer that you did. I'm gonna give uh, Gary Johnson a little free media training here. Um, the first thing you learn when you go on TV is that if you don't know the answer to a question, you answer a different question. That's so right. if somebody says, what about, um, you know, if he thought that was an acronym and he thought they were talking about HIPAA or you know, <laughs> confidentiality, he would say, you know, it's a really interesting point. But I think the bigger point, I think the more interesting yeah. point, then you answer a different question. In this case, you don't have much wiggle room because it says, you know, what, you know, what would, should we do about Aleppo? I mean, the, I no, would just I, mean, I, I would, think- I would make Mike Barnacle uh, uh, talk more about it. I'm just saying this is how you lie. And you say, <laughs> well, what specifically about Aleppo? That's exactly and if you it. start saying the siege of Aleppo, you're like, oh, foreign policy. I'll just give a bunch of foreign policy talking points. Because, you know, Gary, what he did was unbelievably embarrassing. And I think why it was so embarrassing was the way in which he said it. Yeah. Um, he sounded like a bewildered child and he said, and what is Aleppo? And it's like, he sounds, sounded like Captain Kangaroo you know, on an acid binge. I don't know. What is Aleppo? Yeah. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sake. And when people say like, you know, I, I hear that and this man, um, you know, I, I, he does, it is not qualified to be the president. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he's <laughs> not going to be president. We all know that. The only person who doesn't know that is Gary Johnson, who actually said to me one time when we were talking, said, I could possibly be president. And I said, great. No, you can't. But he's not, he's not going to be the president. And so I don't care if he thinks Aleppo is a brand of Indonesian toothpaste. It is, the point is to vote for somebody who isn't these, one of these two horrible candidates. And he could screw up on Aleppo all day because he's never going to be in charge of the American military. Although I, I will take, I will take this on a little more directly. Um, I don't think that momentary lapse is at all indicative of a fundamental misunderstanding of foreign policy or an inability to talk about foreign policy in a sophisticated way. Is it embarrassing? Sure. Um, is it blown out of proportion uh, and fairly ridiculous in the big scheme of things? Well, yeah. Yeah, it is. Because this is, this is actually not a really good indicator of whether or not you actually know what the hell you're talking about. Even if he had memorized, if he had memorized all of the, uh, the world leaders of the UN, like that would no more qualify him to manufacture foreign policy. What Gary Johnson has to do to, to, let's, to allow something like this to slide is he has to make mistakes every day about everything four or five times a day and then people stop paying attention. <laughs> And then you have somebody like Donald Trump. It was Im- incredibly amusing to see these, you know, um, knuckle draggers that uh, support Trump and presume that Johnson is going to pull support away from Trump. And of course, it's an equal split now. We've seen the last couple of polls. 
is that, you know, I, it's really funny to watch these people like make fun of Gary Johnson, who just, by the way, deserves to be made fun of for such a, such a cock up like that. But they're, they're defending a candidate who does something like this every day. It's not just the Quds forces. It's not uh, just Suleimani. It's, I mean, the man has literally no idea what's he's, you know, when he was saying, uh, when he's talking about Syria, uh, in, should we get involved and all this stuff? I mean, he's, he's really, Unaware, like you know, the Ukraine, the, the the Crimea thing is like I would never allow the Russians into Crimea, or we would negotiate whatever the hell he said. Despite the fact that the Russians have been there and Russian um, allied forces have been there for some time, and the annexing of Crimea was it was a big news. He doesn't know anything about this, but it doesn't have much of an effect. And if you bring, if if Gary Johnson gets on the stage, pretend he got on the debate stage. You know how many Aleppo jokes there would be uh, directed at him? How many times do you think people would make a joke about the fact that Donald Trump had no idea that Crimea had been annexed by the Kremlin? Zero times because he's done it so many times. Yeah. So, I mean, Gary Johnson can, can't afford to get away with it because, because he's, he's not somebody who makes mistakes all the time. No, my favorite uh, example of this, uh, Michael, was uh, Eric Bowling who has really distinguished himself uh, in, a, in, a, in a feverish competition of who can be the biggest toady for Donald Trump on Fox News. Uh, OK, Sean Hannity wins, but that's just kind of a special case. But Eric Bowling like, deserves uh, special credit there. He came on uh, that day on The Five and said, oh, that's disqualifying. <laughs> Eric <laughs> Bowling. Why not? Eric, I, I, just, I want to say that Eric Bowling. Policy Bowling. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if I mean, Eric, he's like a lacrosse player. He should have a lanyard around his neck when he's talking about foreign policy. He's like <laughs> oh the biggest fucking bro on television who knows nothing. And it's unbelievable to watch him. But I love my favorite thing to watch is is uh, after after uh, the speech yesterday, uh, Donald Trump's speech yesterday, uh, introduced uh, by his daughter, um, who, you know, had like a Rosa Luxemburg T-shirt on. I mean, these are people that all of a sudden we are going to pay for uh, six weeks uh, vacation, of, of, of maternity leave. And we we are we're no country in the Western world is like the United States. And we should be more like, you know, if not Norway, then maybe Belgium or something. And somebody put together a bunch of tweets from um, a, a few Trump sycophants. Uh, one, that girl that used to write for National Review with the blonde hair, um, who just joined the Trump campaign. What is uh, AJ Delgado, who um, about two or three years ago went on this tirade on Twitter, like paid maternity lead. We're you know becoming France. She actually wrote this. You know, we're we're slouching uh, towards serfdom, um, whatever, <laughs> mixing <laughs> mixing conservative and libertarian metaphors. And then the other day she was saying, you know, look, this is a fantastic plan. We need health care. We need uh, um, maternity leave for, for mothers. We don't want to be left behind like the rest of the world. And it's like they're not even mercenaries because mercenaries acknowledge that they get paid to fight for whoever wants them to fight for them. This is just I don't even know what this is at this point. I mean, how is Eric Bowling and a, a sort of incompetent person? like um, Sean Hannity, who seems to have some sort of mental disorder. Um, how is he going to defend this? It's not that it's, 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 there's some conservatives that believe this. Like, so for instance, on foreign policy, all these people that were previously hawkish, Sean Hannity was previously hawkish, is now talking about neocons and how much he dislikes. Okay, so there's a, little bit of, there's a little bit of room there. There's a conservative. There is no conservative way of defending what Donald Trump proposed the other day. And I'd be interested to see how they do. Well, uh, Rush Limbaugh, just today, and we're on the Wednesday here talking, um, 
kind of uh, walked his way through it. And he's like, yeah, you know, you could there's the perfect world. Like if, you know, like maybe you want to tell me that if Ted Cruz had been the nominee, we'd be talking somewhat differently, but in the world that we work in, that we actually live in and let's face it, folks, you know, uh, the voters out there, they're not, uh, they don't wake up in the morning thinking about uh, these big ideas about principle. They hear an idea and they think it's pretty good. So, uh, you know, maybe it's a pretty good idea. Well, that is the, that is the important, the important thing here. And I I think we've talked about it a few times. It is increasingly difficult to say exactly what a conservative is or what the right is, Uh, at least in terms of sort of ideology um, and ideas and perspectives. I just, I don't know. Um, I mean, Donald Trump seems like a dyed in the wool opportunist (laughs) as opposed to, as opposed to being someone with any sort of particular ideological or intellectual pedigree. Um, they're just, he will go wherever the wind blows and he will do just about anything uh, well, that, well, that I, seems I, consistent with his a, ideas. He has a, he has a profile. I mean, he's a, he's a nationalist, uh-huh. um, uh, a nationalist populist, uh, welfare, welfare stater. I mean, he's, there is the Le Pen category of politicians mm-hmm. that is, is, it's pretty well established. Yeah. It's on the grow uh, around the world, uh, and he's definitely part of that trend. Uh, it, they they have specific characteristics. They defend the welfare state of the native-born population sure. against uh, insiders and outsiders undermining things. It's a uh, it's you know uh, Jeff Greenfield had a good piece in Politico uh, over the weekend, Political Magazine, uh, talking about the roots of this as kind of a, a flowering of Pat Buchanan's ideas from 1991 and 1992. Some guy, uh, Matthew Sheffield, tried to do the same argument in the, the Washington Post 10 days ago, um, taking a lot of shortcuts and basically concluding that uh, Donald Trump speaks the same language as Ron Paul, which doesn't make any sense. And right. uh, the Post had to print two different corrections just based on the one right. paragraph <laughs> about Reason magazine. Uh, <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. oh, oh, that's right. It was a South, the South Africa thing, which seems to be smuggled into the mainstream through um, that uh, uh, guy that used to be in Russia. What's his name? Mark Ames. Uh, hey, yeah. Mark Ames. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, uh, but, uh, but but there is a story to be told there. And Camille, I think there is. A, it's it's less putting his finger in the wind. I mean, he obviously does change his mind about things. He obviously is 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 uh, freelancing on some of these ideas, including uh, childcare, which by all uh, uh, accounts is just basically Ivanka telling him, yeah, you should do this. And uh, I'm sure Kellyanne Conway is a, is a senior advisor, uh, you know, probably said this might be a good way to peel off some of the the, the women vote right now. Uh, but I think he does fit in a identifiable category. Um, and that's partly, as we've mentioned here before, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm more uh, appalled by him uh, than just uh, everything else that's appalling about what he says yeah. is that that category is a particularly bad category. And I and I had hoped that somehow uh, the American political system, for all of its faults, was kind of set up uh, uh, to kind of blunt that from developing. And I was naive about that. And it makes me sad. So I think that the populism like does help to explain um, or at least sort of categorize the economic perspective. But in terms of the foreign policy perspective, there's sort of a, a general like isolationist meme there. Mean is the word that I, that I intended to say if it's not what I said. Um, and there's also like just kind of this really flagrant, brash language um, that 
I don't know how you're not intervening if you're going to do the things that you say, like take their oil, for example. Um, that that is another thing entirely. Is that the nationalism? Is it? Is it yeah, I mean, that's, that's nationalism. Like, that's like Jacksonian. Uh, you know, the 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 classic strains in in conservative foreign policy have been along the lines of you know, there's there's a super isolationism of like Robert Taft, Mr. Conservative back in the day and the American firster people who uh, Trump, you know, echoes back to a little bit. And, and certainly the Buchanan uh, uh, tendencies and, and fan club were part of that. There's the interventionist post-World War II neoconservative, whatever you want to call it. Um, but like uh, the U.S. needs to keep the world shipping lanes, you know, uh, safe and free and be the, the leading uh, superpower and on the, on the leading edge of things. Um, and then there's the Jacksonian uh, kind of version, which is that we don't nation build at all. Fuck nation building. We go and we kick the shit out of people. We cut their throats and then we come and then we come home. Um, and uh, and that sounds more that, fun. And yeah. that's uh, it's much more like belligerent in language, surly. Um, but it ends up being less interventionist, but more cruel. And and that's these are pretty well identified strains in uh, in right of center foreign policy thinking. And the left has their own versions of all of those. Although there's not really a left Jacksonianism. On the description um, of just going in there, not nation building, um, kicking some ass and going home, we have a new we have a person now that we know in the past couple of days who is a proponent of uh, just that strategy, and that's Condoleezza Rice, mm-hmm. who in these hacked emails, um, which we don't know where they came from, cough cough, uh, Lubyanka, um, but but we we don't know where they come from, but. One important email on that was an email between Condi and uh, Colin Powell in which she said, um, no, we, we're never intending to bring democracy to Iraq. Did you anyone see this? It I was know. A, I did indeed she, see it. Yeah, it was the idea where not we were we had no interest in bringing democracy to Iraq, however she phrased it. And, um, you know, it was pretty much sticking to the script, even in private communications. Um, the, the implication being we wanted to disarm Iraq who we thought were, were a uh, threat in, in, in the world after 9-11 of harboring uh, terrorists. Um, uh, and weirdly enough, of course, they identified Ansar al-Islam and Kurdish uh, extremist group who was an enemy of, of Baghdad as evidence that, that, uh, that uh, Iraq was harboring terrorists that they were also fighting. Um, but basically her point is, is that, well, no, we, we, we weren't there to establish democracy. And that's a little, you know, um, sort of after the fact thinking, of course, hindsight. But, you know, she's not saying, as everyone was publicly saying, we want to bring uh, democracy to the Middle East. And and she actually, I think, cites uh, the president, uh, GW, as kind of believing the same thing. I don't recall. So don't quote well, me on that. that, that I, think, was... I think there's, that's, that speaks to something. I'll jump here. Sorry, Camille. Uh, no, that, um, uh, that is not well enough digested because by the second term of Bush, people just kind of hated Bush and they didn't really pay any attention to how um, his foreign policy changed over the, the course of his presidency, like a lot of presidents do. Condoleezza Rice is much more of a realist. And that's the other school I didn't mention, partly because it, for the most part, has stopped existing in uh, in U.S. foreign policy and on the right, which is a very interesting trend, I think. The realist of the James Baker uh, kind of school, uh, the uh, the doctrine, uh, what was the, the uh, Scowcroft, Brent Scowcroft uh, doctrine, uh, which is 
uh, more along the lines of you have to make damn well sure this is in America's national interest to, to who, who, who very strongly, very, very strongly opposed uh, the war, in, the, the second war in Iraq. Right. And and by the time uh, Condoleezza Rice was was uh, running uh, State Department, um, it looked different. Um, it was there was less democracy promotion. George W. Bush was still talking in those terms, I think, as much defending kind of the uh, uh, initial actions as anything else. But she began the process of drawing down. I mean, there's there is some continuity. A, a lot of uh, Republicans, conservatives, uh, especially on the hawkish side, like to blame Obama uniquely for uh, you know, withdrawing out of Iraq and causing this whole vacuum. Like we had it under control, man. Uh, and, and and then the, we allowed the uh, the traitor to come in. And there's actually a lot of continuity between his policy and the and the Condoleezza Rice, George W. Bush uh, policy uh, in Iraq, where they had a jolt of realism in things. And I think the, there's some people like our friend Katie McFarland, who does a lot of uh, Fox spots. She's probably my favorite person who I know who is a Trump supporter. Um, uh, she is someone who's always argued that there needs to be a realism uh, reintroduced in American foreign policy. I agree with her about that. Um, I, and uh, I think she's so desperate for a vessel that, like a lot of people, including some uh, people who are more non-interventionist, they're desperate for any vessel that they've decided to hear what they want to hear in Donald Trump, because he ends up saying so many different things. Jesse Walker had a pretty good piece about this 10 days ago, a reason. He ends up saying so many different things about foreign policy, actually in a very similar way to George Wallace back in the day, uh, which is again in this sort of Jacksonian tradition, that people can glom on to bits of it and decide that, okay, well, maybe he's going to believe this one third of what yeah, he says. That, that's the part he really means. And, and yeah. uh, to, to get back to it uh, quickly, I mean, these emails uh, were uh, leaked were placed at, or at least published by DCLeaks.com. Uh, rumor has it that, the, that there is some connection between them and Russia. Uh, and they've largely been described as sort of the Colin Powell uh, emails, uh, because oh. there is understandably um, sort of a connection between Mr. Powell and a bunch of other important people uh, who do foreign policy stuff. But there's the, the copy of the email on one hand that you were referring to earlier is, is interesting. It's first, first we didn't invade Iraq to bring democracy, uh, but once we overthrew Saddam, we had a view of what should follow, Rice responds. Um, and here, here she is again, quote, if Don and the Pentagon had done their job after claiming the right to lead post-war rebuilding, things might have turned out differently. Um, I don't know that that's very realistic. It is interesting to hear this this school of thought called foreign policy realism because sometimes your goals are simply unrealistic. And well, I don't know what vision they might have had um, afterwards. Yeah. But but what is it? What exactly is doing your job and creating stability in a country that has really never known it, um, except for the sort of stability that has been brought to it by a strongman? She makes, I mean, she makes the case in a way in these emails that if you wanted, uh, if you're sort of more in line with Donald Trump's thinking or more in line with a, with an anti-interventionist American foreign policy, that you should have been on the side of Paul Wolfowitz and Doug Fife, um, two uh, of great enemies of uh, people who uh, opposed the Iraq war at the very beginning of the war and uh, after the fact, because uh, Colin Powell wrote in a response to Condoleezza Rice, Doug and Paul, that's Doug Fife and Paul Wolfowitz, claimed they had a plan to turn Iraq and, they are, and, our, um, and the army, or our army, army over to Chalabi, and that's Ahmed Chalabi, the, um, the exiled 
Iraqi, not leader, but Iraqi uh, ringmaster weirdo in leave. So Doug and Paul claimed they had a plan. They should turn Iraq over uh, and our army over to Chalabi and leave. Um, he, uh, he seems to be, and then he says 43, uh, referring to President Bush, uh, knew what had to be done. And he specifically rejected the Chalabi crowd. And as you say, the boys in the band, that's the Rumsfeld crowd, mm-hmm. were brain dead. Basically, what that's saying is Colin Powell, who's being praised as a hero now from everyone reading these emails, the Atlantic had a thing of like uh, the, uh, today, Colin Powell is the last reasonable man in America. What he's saying is that the original idea of turning it over to Chalabi and leaving right. uh, was a bat was like he's making fun of them for that. And then saying 43 knew what to be had to be done and specifically rejected the Chalabi crowd. Um, well, I mean, Ahmed Chalabi is a complicated man and um, would have been a disaster uh, in that uh, uh, running that country. But, and um, would have probably, he's a charlatan who misled the yeah, United States like, government and fed them bad intelligence and helped to make and the then, situation so much worse. Yeah, and then became an ally, an ally of Iran the second he he you know embedded himself back in Baghdad. But yeah, it's an incredible thing though because he's saying that you know turn it over to Chalabi. Well, you know, regardless of Iraq, um, if Iraq wanted to self-immolate uh, under the leadership of Chalabi and not under the the tutelage of Paul Bremer or whoever it might be, that probably would have been a better situation as far as I, I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, so, so a lot of this, though, the focus of most of the conversation has actually been about what these emails have to say about Hillary Clinton. Uh, first, I suppose, um, is in the hierarchy of things being discussed is uh, the fact that Hillary has sort of drug uh, Colin Powell into this conversation by saying that she got advice from him. Um, he pretty strenuously uh, in these emails um, argues that he begged them to leave him out of it uh, and that they knew full well that these were two materially different things. Um, and second, I mean, he's keeping scorn on, on Donald Trump, um, as we uh, as we sort of mentioned a moment ago. So there's there's quite a bit here. Um, no, dude, dude, dude. First, it was that he said that Bill Clinton was dicking bimbos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's great. Yeah. There's yeah. That too. What are you even talking about? There's, you're, you're, there's that too. Hierarchy here. You're right. I, I did miss the most important detail uh, that he <laughs> apparently he apparently is privy to the uh, the sexual escapades of no, one what, former former president that, and would be first gentleman. He, how does, uh, he, how does he know that they're bimbos? By the way, I mean he could be <laughs> he could be dicking, which I've never heard as a verb. It must be something from the 1950s. He could be dicking uh, women who uh, who have a high levels of education. Yeah, well, if you look at the, at the communication, he he immediately sources it in parentheses, to like, according to the New York Post. <laughs> yeah, and, but we should say that dicking bimbos, that is a direct quote. That is not artful language being yeah. employed by, by Mr. Yeah. Matt Welch. That is in the, uh, that is no. in the correspondence there. It's a, it's a heroic uh, turn of phrase. I think we can all agree. <laughs> um, the other thing we can agree on is something that our friend Andy Levy uh, tweeted out, which is, uh, you know, is there anyone in the United States of America who is more things to all people than Colin Powell? Um, he, uh, you know, everyone in the same way that uh, people are uh, like desperately grabbing hold of Donald Trump, trying to uh, 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 see what they want to see. Um, Powell. Uh, is like this character who we give all this virtue to and we only sporadically pin uh, blame on. Uh, I find his act to be pretty grating, to be honest. And even in the emails that you were just reading, Michael, which I haven't looked at yet, um, uh, he's just forever 
pinning responsibility on other people. Yeah, uh, and, sure. and he sure. he is a person who's had yeah, maybe a little bit more impact on American public policy and foreign policy than most. Like he, he makes a top you know ten list over the last quarter century, and you'd never know it by listening to him talk. Did I ever tell you guys how he wrote me an email once? Call was, me it, was it was it like this email? Did it mention dicking bimbos? <laughs> I wish because our relationship <laughs> would be a little bit different. Oh. Uh, he watched me on Melissa Harris Perry. He was he was sitting at home on a weekend just checking out MHP like you do. Uh, and I mentioned the uh, the Powell or the, the Pottery Barn uh, Doctrine, which is a Colin Powell, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, the phrase of, uh, you know, you built it, uh, uh, you broke it, you, uh, you buy it. Um, uh, and I think that I had mistakenly applied that to Iraq and he angrily wrote me a, an email saying, you know, that was actually about Afghanistan. Get your facts right. And I'm just like, <laughs> okay, you know, sorry to get things wrong. It's my job to get things right. But what are you doing sending me an email watching MHP on a Saturday or Sunday morning? Trump-like. Uh, so that's, Trump-like. That's, Trump that's my well, dinner. Uh, uh, the, the one thing that he should really be blamed for and he doesn't get uh, any blame for it is the fact that his chief of staff was Larry Wilkinson. Wilkerson, who now is a fixture on RT, and um, I he uh, like denies that. Uh, I mean, he still does also that he denied that um, that uh, the Assad re- regime uh, used uh, gas and a uh, gas tech that we almost certainly know was uh, coming from Damascus. Uh, he's just he's a, a rote kind of standard RT guy, and I there's a he wrote a column here uh, in the salon. I guess it's a we are the death merchant of the world uh, about the military industrial complex. And it's like, how the fuck this guy ever became Colin Powell's chief of staff? Um, you know, I, 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 I have no idea. But it shows the type of judgment that Colin Powell has. Well, we, we, Camille's, I don't know. we are the death merchant of the world. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know. I didn't say that. He, he probably works for Freethink Media, too. Hey, take it easy. <laughs> um, we, we don't employ incompetence. Uh, I know. I, I kid. I kid. Uh, but uh, one thing I definitely don't want to pass up uh, or, or pass by or bypass um, on the uh, anniversary of 9-11, uh, both would-be candidates were here or would-be presidents or the person who is competing to not lose for the White House, which is perhaps the best way to describe it, uh, were here um, in Manhattan where I am uh, at ground zero. Uh, which I, it's a little odd that we still call it that sometimes. Um, and Miss Clinton uh, apparently had some sort of medical episode, which initially was described as dehydration and was eventually revealed to be uh, related the to, vapors. we think, yes, the vapors, uh, some, some sort of influenza. Uh, so now she is, uh, flu gate is upon us. And the most important insight here is that InfoWars was obviously right and is now a credible media source and should uh, be respected yeah. and we all sure. have to bow down to them for having pointed out that Hillary Clinton is obviously terribly, terribly ill and is going to perhaps pass away at any moment, um, which is why she is thoroughly disqualified to hold the office. A little bit of sarcasm there, but what do you, what do you gentlemen make of this situation um, and do you agree with the that one doctor dude that Will Smith played in that movie about concussions that he should have totally won an Oscar for, um, who speculated on Twitter that Hillary Clinton's fainting is not about uh, pneumonia, but she has been poisoned by the Russians. Uh, sure. Published in the Washington yeah. Post, which is uh, nice. Nice touch there. You know, 
You know what's amazing about this is it shows the kind of feeble uh, opposition that Hillary Clinton is facing and Donald Trump and Donald Trump's uh, incredibly stupid surrogates. Uh, because what you, what I would like for them to do would be to engage Hillary Clinton on some of her um, crappy foreign policy positions, on some of her crappy domestic policy positions. And what ends up happening and what, what carries the day is just like President Obama in 2008, we um, saw a lot of people expending a lot of time and energy, including the frothing nuts over at InfoWars trying to um, uh, uncover a birth certificate in uh, Kinshasa or wherever the hell they were, um, rather than just saying that this is what I uh, – enumerating the problems uh, with uh, uh, President Obama's uh, domestic or foreign policy. They're like trying to – I'm going to go after him and say he's disqualified to be the president because he wasn't born here. So rather than confronting Hillary Clinton head on, which is a rather – easy thing to do, I would think. Um, now all this conversation is happening about whether or not uh, she is ill and she will not survive the presidency. So therefore, um, nobody should vote for her and maybe vote for the healthier Donald Trump, because this is a this is an easier way of doing it. The conspiracy theorizing and saying what is disqualifying uh, this person for the presidency is not so much their politics, but some either health issue or some sort of legal issue about where they were born. And I mean, it's 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 indicative of this kind of strand on the right, which which I think is um, incredibly lazy and uh, doesn't want to actually engage in policy uh, conversations because people like Sean Hannity, for instance, uh, don't have the metal or the backbone to actually do so. Although you get it, you get that on the left as well, don't you? I mean, oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. Older candidates on the right, I mean, uh, Bob Dole, Ronald Reagan, who have been uh, criticized for their old age uh, and their uh, inability to... Uh, to do things. Yeah. <laughs> don't get me wrong. So just, to, just, to, just to make a one uh, point here, but don't get me wrong. Um, I don't believe that, uh, as a lot of people on the left do, yeah. um, that the, these are um, questions that shouldn't be asked. They certainly should. I take issue with the fact that, you know, there's a blo broken clock thing going on here. I mean, mm -hmm. the coughing fit should have actually uh, pricked up people's ears. And I think that the, the concerns about that were, were real and should have been real and turned out actually to be pneumonia. But this predates that from quite a bit, you know. People like the Daily Mail, somebody's holding an EpiPen yeah. for epileptic seizures and who is this mystery doctor and all the conspiracy theorizing. I just think general questions about her health or the health are, are, are um, not only uh, uh, you know, important, but totally necessary. But and also quite questions about her uh, just being non-transparent and like, you know, if you're diagnosed, if if, it, if the story is exactly as it was laid out by the Clinton people, let's just make that assumption for the sake of laughter uh, uh, here. She got diagnosed with pneumonia on Friday. She has this incredibly well publicized uh, stumble into the van at the 9-11. It's what everyone is talking about for several hours on Sunday. Right. So this is. A good time later, and we still don't hear anything back about the Friday diagnosis of pneumonia until several hours later. What the hell? What kind of approach towards basic information sharing uh, is that? And I think that plays into that critique, which is one of the more valid critiques of uh, Clinton. I could give shit uh, really about her health. And it's and it, I mean, if you hate Hillary Clinton anyways, shouldn't you? I don't know what, like, what would, is it going to make, I don't know. I just don't see the, the candidate's health. I mean, I hope both of them 
are uh, are uh, healthy as a, a good human being, and I really wouldn't care too much if I them were sick because you know I'm not going to vote for them anyways. It's like it, it, that their health does not come in my uh, calculations, uh, which is which is queer. I remember in 2008 because uh, I wrote a book about John McCain. Um, there was a fever swamp on the left. It wasn't that well populated, but occasionally you'd see it get voice in places like Rolling Stone magazine that would say, make two critiques. Um, well, one is that, of, of, of course, he's uh, super old and, uh, and he might have medical issues, which he masterfully uh, counteracted by doing a document dump of like five trillion uh, medical records onto the world. And then that story just kind of went, went away. But the other was this persistent thing um, that he was a Manchurian candidate, um, which is really a, a sinister accusation that uh, in prison at the Hanoi Hilton, uh, he was sort of implanted with like secret messages. And that's it's the yen for wanting to believe that there's a secret story out there that knits everything together. I mean, the other thing about Obama, yeah, there's the birth certificate. And we can all laugh at that. Uh, but we're going to hear about his Alinskyite, uh, you know, and Reverend Wright stuff forever. Mm -hmm. um, that is so important among people even people who have totally rejected Donald Trump as a, as a, as a crazy person, as Glenn Beck has, for example. Glenn Beck can't stop talking about Alinskyism. I mean, Sal Alinsky has been more important these last eight years to the American right than he maybe ever was on the American left, in my estimation. And Moynihan, maybe you have a different view on that since you actually have more working knowledge of Alinsky and his influence on, um, on 70s uh, lefty radicalism. Uh, but I think people are just looking for the secret sauce out there because they like the mystery and it's more fun uh, somehow to believe that there is a more sinister explanation for things. And then when you have someone like uh, Clinton, both in her just basic behavior and her uh, stiff arming of anything that would be like normal transparency, uh, her actions just play into it kind of beautifully. It's a very uh, mutually reinforcing thing. Uh, on the Alinsky thing and on, and on this kind of um, the paranoid style. Um, you know, Richard Hofstetter's book on this, I mean, which defined uh, and everyone reaches back to, which by the way is is, is um, not a very good book if you go back no, and read it. It's, it's garbage. And, and if you go back and read and, and the things like Buckley, so now we have a thing where people say, I wish all these conservatives could be like Bill Buckley, could have a show on PBS, could lean back in the chair on firing line with the clipboard and interview everybody and be friends with people on both sides of the aisle and be smart and fluid. Um, at the time, of course, uh, Buckley was uh, considered in the Hofstadter uh, kind of vein of being on the, the loony and loopy right. Um, the difference is a difference of technology. At the time, there were uh, so many newsletters that that um, one could get in the Father Coughlin kind of kind of um, universe that that were um, you know Cleon Skousen, which is which is somebody that Glenn Beck became obsessed with when he became uh, popular in two thousand eight two thousand nine, who wrote um, a book called The Naked Communist, right? The Naked yeah. uh, was it the yeah, um, which uh, posited that everybody and everything was under Moscow's influence, um, and there would be a number of organizations. ADL did a whole bunch of stuff about this in the 1960s, writing uh, writing books and pamphlets about this sinister kind of movement on the right, the people that had newsletters and weirdo views. But they kind of stayed there, and they were a great prop for people um, to say that there's this paranoid style in Richard Hofstetter's kind of way. Now, I think the difference is, is that Fox News was the largest cable station 
um, and still is the largest uh, cable news station on television. Uh, and they had, uh, for a very long time, the Glenn Beck chalkboard program in which an all series of connections were made between things that weren't connected and the Muslim Brotherhood and, you know, various communist parties and mad stuff. And all of this Alinsky stuff that when you actually read it, um, you know, this idea that uh, Obama's father was a communist named Frank Marshall Davis, this stuff <laughs> got so deep and got so uh, there's so much of it that it was like the the Clinton craziness of the 90s of the conspiracy theories, the Clinton death list, the the uh, main airport, all this stuff. You can look all this m m wacky stuff up. But there was this sort of mainstreaming of it in 2008, 2009. Um, and it's only because of technology. This is the thing that I think people miss is that America is crazier than it's ever been. It's more enthrall of, of conspiratorial ideas and politics. It's like, no, it's just easier to disseminate them. And people who don't really understand politics sure. will fall, fall victim to this stuff because pre- Previously, it would never come across the transom. You wouldn't be walking, sitting in your house in 1965, and someone would be explaining the naked communist by Cleon Skousen to you. Every time you turn the bloody radio on um, these days, there's there's some version of this, um, whether it's Obama or, you know, I think we're going to get less of it uh, with Hillary Clinton. Um, but because so much of that Clinton stuff has already been out there for so long. Um, nobody cares about the Rose Law Firm and, you know, uh, things like that anymore. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to commend everyone who's inter interested in this topic to obviously read uh, uh, Jesse Walker uh, from Reason. He's, he wrote about this just a couple of days ago. He wrote uh, the classic modern book uh, about the uh, kind of it's, it's ultimately a rebuke of Hofstetter, but a, an update of the of the paranoid style uh, uh, conspiracy theories throughout American uh, politics. And uh, he's a little bit uh, more circumspect, even though I don't really know what that word means, um, about, uh, you know, technology speeding everything up. He also will argue that it speeds up um, the debunking of things. And it's kind of hard to say if there's, you know, more X now than Y. Uh, but I think some of the segues into something that we should talk about if we have enough time, uh, which is Hillary's uh, basket full of deplorables, which is another, it's not as quite as good as dicking bimbos, but it's, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, it's certainly a, a pretty memorable uh, phrase because I think some of that emanates of a flip side of this. Maybe it's not as conspiratorial, but it's certainly collectivist. And it's something that's been also on the grow from 2008, 2009. It's almost a mirror image of, uh, of what Michael was talking about in, in the kind of uh, chalkboarding era of the anti-Obama right. Uh, I think there's been this kind of Southern Poverty Law Center you know, uh, tea, everything about the Tea Party is just racist. Um, uh, boy, some a, a thesis which maybe has more uh, validity now than it did in 2009 when people were writing, uh, you know, these incredibly uh, uh, panicked columns like E.J. Dion uh, talking about it, like, you know, it's the policies of the jackboot coming back just because people were going and meeting with their congressmen on in August of 2009 and yelling at, about them, uh, about Obamacare. People like totally lost their shit about like this uh, web of, you know, uh, uh, populist right wing groups out there that are racist and that they're probably terroristic and all these kind of things. Um, and I think a lot of that came through in Hillary's first her alt right speech, which we have discussed previously, but very specifically in the basket full of horrible, oh, the basket of horribles or basket full of horrible. I think, I think it's just so basket, horrible. basket of deplorables. basket of deplorables. Yeah, that's the, that's yeah. the, 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 the way. By the way, deplorables isn't a word, but go ahead. Ah, you know what? I 
I believe that the English language is infinitely adaptable. That's what makes it charming. Um, uh, but uh, the, it, there is, an, uh, I think, an interestingly reductionist uh, view uh, that that represents. And especially, it, it was very similar to the 47% comment that Mitt Romney made in 2012, which is it to was. say uh, so many people on her side came out immediately and just started defending it, saying she's absolutely right. These are deplorables. Um, that's a, thank, thank you for raising that point. And they don't see themselves engaging in a collectivist denunciation of a huge block of people denying them individual agency, which I always thought was the worst part of the Romney thing. You're just going to write off 47% of the population of because this is your status in life, then therefore you are going to act and vote in this one way and so forget you. I mean, that that also undergirds some of the Ann Coulterite um, views on immigration. Like, well, these people are just going to vote Democrat and they have all these uh, uh, pathologies to screw them. Um, and it also undergirds Trump's comments about Judge Curiel of not uh, his Mexican heritage preventing him from being fair and these kind of things. Um, it's we this is because we have two loathsome cretins running against each other um, because they are hated and distrusted for very good reasons from both sides. This, of course, becomes the most collectivist a presidential campaign. And by collectivism, I specifically mean not just their policies, which I think both of them are more collectivist than anyone in uh, you know, recent history on either one of their teams, uh, but also in the collective hatreds towards the other uh, and the denying of individual humanity out there. And it's really, uh, it's regrettable, uh, but it also you know points to kind of a shining difference to people who are not like that. And I think most human beings, I, I, I want to believe still, are not like that. Uh, and that's why when we hear those kinds of things, uh, we instinctively recoil, uh, not necessarily because of team membership, but because you're just saying that a huge block of people has no uh, essential personalities and are irredeemably bad. The end. So, so there's, there's a couple of things there that, I, that I'm tempted to, to sort of pull the thread on a little bit, but I'm going to do this in a slightly different way. Um, 538 had a post today uh, which is essentially a, a lightly edited, as they describe it, transcript of what I believe is their regular weekly podcast, which I, I didn't listen to this week, but I did read this entire post. Um, and the gist of the post is they are trying to determine just just how deplorable are these people um, and just what percentage of Donald Trump's voters are, in fact, deplorable. Um, I, I think the exercise is is interesting. I'll, I'll say that um, first. Um, there's something about it that, that seems sort of fraught with all kinds of uh, difficulty. But what's interesting to me, what's most interesting to me is the fact that, and it's not sort of a complete consensus here, but there is a general sense coming out of the conversation, if you read it, that um, while it's kind of complicated, one thing's for sure, Trump supporters are way more racist than Hillary's supporters. Um, and for an empirical outfit like 538, uh, one that prides itself on sort of data and substantive and thoughtful analysis, I find it really, really interesting when I see people leaning on uh, sort of social science um, that is all about measuring these intangible things uh, that we can't exactly uh, observe uh, in any sort of analytical way, but that we actually have to construct models and uh, create survey questions for. Um, and the fact, the fact of the matter is that on a lot of these criteria, 
Um, they, they, for example, prevents, provide some survey data where they are talking to white Democrats and white Republicans. Um, and they ask them, for example, whites who say blacks are more unintelligent than intelligent. Um, and, you know, that is an interesting, an interesting question. Uh, when I see a graph like that, I immediately start to wonder uh, whether or not, uh, well, what, how the question was phrased, whether or not people had an option not to answer, what percentage of the people just decided not to answer that ridiculous question, um, because that's kind of weird. That's strange. Well, Camille, to, Camille, to give you an idea of how this stuff stacks up is, and there, there's a Reuters uh, Ipsos poll about this, I think in June or July, and um, Trump, it was the same question, percentage of supporters that view blacks as less, quote, intelligent than whites. Um, and it was 30, I think 32% of uh, Trump supporters agreed with that. So that's a pretty high number. But when it, when it confuses matters a little bit, is 22% of Hillary Clinton supporters uh, agreed with the same question. Oh, right. So uh, work ethic, a uh, percentage of supporters who uh, viewed blacks as more lazy right. than whites, uh, that was about 24% of Hillary Clinton views, a, a quarter of them, uh, 40% of Trump. I, I don't know how much stock to put in this stuff. I'm not, uh, I'm not a polling expert. Um, it seems weird that to, to, I don't know how these polls work, you call somebody and say, do you view blacks as more rude than whites, which is one of the questions. Right. Uh, 42-odd percent of Trump supporters said yes, and 30% of Clinton supporters said yes. Um, I, I don't, I mean, are those, I, there's a lot of uh, sort of unknowables or, or things that I don't, maybe I just don't know them um, in this stuff. And I just think that Matt, Matt is correct, and I think it's a bad strategy to say that, you know, half of the people that support um, uh, Donald Trump uh, are racist. And you know why that's a bad strategy? Because you're not choosing who those people are. Now, that sounds like a crazy and silly thing to say. How could you choose which people are the half that are racist? But I'll tell you one thing. If you're talking about some unemployed steel worker in some Pittsburgh town, uh, suburb who is supporting Donald Trump, uh, and I would say wrongly and stupidly, for economic reasons, because they have a populist streak in them, when they hear that, where do you think they're going to place themselves. Do you gonna th are you going to think that they're going to say like, oh, Hillary Clinton wasn't talking about me. She, she would think that I was one of the other 50%. No, anybody who hears that who's a Trump supporter will believe that Hillary Clinton is talking about them. But this, isn't, is but this isn't necessarily about persuading Trump supporters. And no, it, it, it is, it, no, it isn't at all. But I yeah. mean, I think that, I think that the, the effect that this has on the people that support Trump, even softly, is to say that, oh, here they go, saying that if I am disaffected economically, if I you know, want a change in Washington, I want to get rid of the elites that I'm racist, they're not going to say like, well, I'm sort of on the fence about Trump, so they're not talking about me. Everyone will presume that Hillary Clinton is talking about them, even if they're a soft supporter of Donald Trump. And, you know, is that a, is that a smart uh, 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 electoral strategy? I don't know. I don't think so. But I think it's just a, a, a bad... Uh, strategy in general to to kind of you know divide the electorate in that way. Well, let's also think about it in, in terms of uh, strategy for social change. To use jargon in my nonprofit world, um, you know, let th think about a, a less emotional issue like legalizing marijuana, which is something that the three of us would like to see. Uh, public attitudes on this is total have totally uh, shifted over the last twenty twenty five years. Now that we have the um, 
ability to see that, uh, you know, uh, the medical marijuana um, uh, didn't uh, legalizing that didn't cause the uh, whole culture to collapse. And so you have these demonstration projects. Well, if you decided that X number of people who hold X views are irredeemable, are just by definition because they hold those views bad, um, and you spent your time focusing on that, is that how you're going to persuade them to get to the good place? I don't really think that that's actually very effective. And and I mean, people's attitudes towards race in this country are night and day compared to what they were in the 1960s when you look at things like interracial marriage mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of other questions. They have totally changed. And what you do is you go after Bull Connor. You go after the motherfucker with a hose, the person who is actively doing the wrong thing, abusing power, and you show people that, that person is evil and wrong. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, isn't this isn't this also on some level like evidence of the fact that when when it actually comes down to it, social change is not happening in in Washington. Does not necessarily happen in these elections. Isn't principally what this is about. This is about obtaining power. Um, and once you have power, you can do any number of other things. But it's I mean, there are cultural factors that factor into to how we change our perspective on an issue like marijuana. Um, Kanye West and uh, Kim Kardashian are almost certainly single-handedly responsible for making you, Matt Welch, more comfortable with interracial relationships. Um, <laughs> and that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. Or maybe I should credit that to Ray J. I, maybe that's I think, a, it's okay. Kanye. I think it's okay for Armenian hobbits. I think that one of the, I think race is, is handled differently in this country because um, there's such an expectation that everybody have the correct view on race. And, and there's a sort of silent committee that, that, that decides that the terminology we use, the way we talk about race, the way we think about race, and we treat it in a different way. So if you are off the reservation when mm-hmm. talking about race, you are irredeemable. I mean, we treat people who, who are, you know, have uh, views that are sympathetic to ISIS and terrorism uh, with, with more, with more uh, kind of reason and understanding than we do um, with people who have I, I, things that I would presumably think were bad views and stupid views about race. Because what happens when we find when we say, why do they hate us? That's what we say about terrorism. And yeah, I said this we try to understand, understand them. Before. We need to try to understand them. We need to counteract this. And we need to do it through persuasion, not through brute force. Whereas in in when it comes to having the incorrect view on um, social, maybe cultural and racial issues in this country, um, we have presidential candidates saying these people are deplorable and irredeemable. Irredeemable. And I believe that um, they aren't irredeemable. I think some of these people do have really ugly views on race. And we've seen that in Donald Trump rallies. And there's no sense in denying it whatsoever. But to use that kind of like sort of blunt force, and it's a political thing, too. It's not only about race. It's a Republican Democrat thing, too, is that we can we never have a conversation about treating people who in the why they hate us way. How do we persuade them to come around to less extreme views? Um, We have a presidential candidate who's who's saying they are irredeemable and um, they are scumbags and they should be destroyed. And look, I, I agree that, 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 that a lot of people, these people are, are terrible people um, and have terrible views. But I think that um, through the way that, that the sort of gay marriage became more acceptable in this country was through contact um, with, 
with uh, sort of whether it was through will and grace or, or an uncle that felt comfortable and now coming out because it was 2010, 2005 in, in understanding and seeing that up close and realizing it wasn't a terrible and scary thing. And I think with race, I mean, I, the most sort of bizarre backwards racial uh, attitudes I see from people tend to be people that that um, that have no don't live in the city and don't uh, interact with people who who don't look like them. So, uh, you know, there are ways that we can um, kind of change people's minds, and it's not by telling them they're irredeemable. And, and I think all of that is all that is spot on. The the one thing I, I would highlight about this five thirty eight piece is part of the sort of correct racial orthodoxy is buying into. Um, the premise that there is this sort of background radiation of racial animus that is inside of all of us. And we are directing it towards minorities all the time and destroying their lives. And there is uh, concrete evidence of it uh, in academia, um, if only we will open our minds and pay attention. And to the extent that you are at all skeptical um, of some of those conclusions um, or of the evidence to the extent it's ever, anyone ever bothers to, to cite some, um, you are similarly um, out of step uh, and perhaps not a deplorable yet, but close to it. Um, that's it. Maybe we back away from this. We've, we've given the folks a little bit of, of bonus time here. Um, some idiot wrote this. Uh, Moynihan, I know you had some uh, some sentiments related to uh, one of your favorite organizations uh, coming straight out of Oakland, as they say. Uh, the A's? The deal. Yeah, the, the Oakland A's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So I sent uh, Camille um, a link, as I, as I tend to do. I, every time I get... Um, uh, angry about something, I, I tend to, to text it to Camille, um, especially when it's on an issue like the Black Panthers. Um, I um, am staying in Oakland now and working on a story, and uh, Oakland saw the 50th anniversary of the birth of the Black Panthers uh, just a few days ago. Um, and there has been a concerted effort at recasting the Black Panthers as an organization that gave free breakfast and um, and helped out the community and were just um, set upon by by a racist police force and um, J. Edgar Hoover only. And that's the reason, if they did bad things, that they did bad things at all. It was purely reactive. Uh, that is not true, and I've, I've written extensively about this, but there was a piece in the New York Times that is um, uh, reviewing a photo book that just came out. I actually saw it in the bookstore the other day uh, from a guy named Stephen Shames uh, called Power to the People, The World of the Black Panthers, uh, published by Abrams. And it is a photo book about the um, controversial, as they say in the New York Times, Black Panthers. The problem I have with this piece is are many, but I'll keep it very brief. Um, the first paragraph has this sentence. Uh, the book doesn't just show community activism. It also challenges lurid media stereotypes about the organization responsible for the initiative, the Black Panther Party. Um, Camille and I, uh, there was a paragraph uh, that we, we talked about uh, previously, which was the requisite paragraph when you're slobbering all over a violent um, um, sectarian gang like the Black Panthers, you have to have the granted paragraph and there was a paragraph that begins, granted, among such a group of strong-willed leaders <laughs> with a particular vision, uh, the Panthers suffered from factionalism, disorganization, mm -hmm. and personality cults that so often afflict, and it's an affliction, oppositional movements. So that's the, that's, that's the one sentence. Really? That, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's it is. Not 
No, it's not good. Uh, granted, uh, strong-willed, particular vision, suffered from factionalism, disorganization, and this was a, an affliction that, uh, that hits oppositional movements. So um, to the New York Times, um, you get the award this week uh, for being uh, an idiot and somebody that wrote this and read my piece about the Panthers uh, in the Daily Beast. I, I, I'd be an interesting exercise to go back and just um, use the exact same wording to describe the Bundy family. So yeah, let's see how that works. <laughs> the oppositional movement. Oppositional yeah. movements. Yeah, yeah. They suffer from some factionalism and in their eagerness to overcome. But uh, I mean, very good. So, if, uh, if, you could do, if you could do the whitewashing there uh, with the Black Panthers, I suspect you can do it with the, uh, with the, Bundy, with the Bundyites as well. Sure. Although, you know what? To be fair, the Bundyites didn't have nearly as good uh, graphic design. That's, That's true. Yeah. That's true. They didn't have yeah, Emery Douglas uh, was uh, was a pretty good graphic designer. But uh, but Matt, go ahead. Do you have an idiot or not? Uh, no, uh, the idiot is us for not uh, for being off uh, on a week. We are a <laughs> weekly podcast. Almost weekly. We know we are a weekly podcast, just like the New Yorker we is a weekly this, magazine. But they get paid. They have paid subscribers. Issues. They have paying subscribers, a million of them. We have a lot of people that listen. And, you know, we also have jobs. And we're doing this, by the way, Michigan, New York, California. We're making it happen. So give us some credit. Give us some credit. Uh, Different time zones. Yeah. Was that, Matt, send more alcohol? Send more beer uh, to our listeners. <laughs> Send me in addition money. to nice comments. Great. Well, well, we do also want to hear from you. Uh, ping us at We The Fifth uh, on Twitter. Uh, visit WeTheFifth.com uh, and uh, check out past shows, etc., etc. And we'll, we'll be doing some other cool stuff there shortly. Um, but I, I think, gentlemen, that we have given them their money's worth. Um, and actually, we've given them infinitely more than that. Uh, you, you people don't deserve this. You don't. But we do it anyways. <laughs> Unconditional love. Um, so, yeah, I think that's it. All right, Good. Goodbye. So, yes. we, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.